This month we have been doing hard questions about the Bible, uh, difficult topics that are there, and uh, we have covered quite a few different topics. You know, we've we've gone over homosexuality. We have gone over, can, you know, why does a good God send people to hell? Uh, we also talked last week about politics, and I heard someone tell me just recently that the word politic comes from two words, poly and tick. Poly is many, and tick is a blood-sucking creature. And so last week. We talked about blood-sucking creatures in politics, and um, I'm sure that was wonderful. But today, we're going to be talking about slavery, slavery. Now, that, that doesn't sound like a phenomenal topic to talk about. It doesn't sound like the type of topics that we're all going to go running home happy today. I feel so encouraged and filled with Jesus Christ this morning, because we talked about slavery, but this is a real issue, right? And I don't think that probably most churches don't usually try and tackle this topic about slavery. But before we ever get into any difficult moral topic, I'm going to quickly go over what I went over a few weeks ago when it comes down to how do we have a productive conversation about this? Well, the first one is we do have to answer the question, is there a God? Because if you don't believe there's a God, um, if you don't really believe that a God made the heavens and the earth and he doesn't exist, then there's no point in having this conversation because everything is relative. Whatever you decide is right, whatever I decide is right, even if it doesn't agree with each other, we all get to decide what we think is right or wrong. So we have to agree, is there a God? And if that's true, then which God's morality should we follow? Because there are many gods out there. Our God, the God of the Old Testament, is one, one of many gods that have been created in the universe, uh, I believe, by mankind. But if we agree that the God of the universe is Yahweh of the Old Testament, then we actually have to ask then, what is it that he wants for us? What does the Christian God actually say? What does he want from us? What is he expecting that we should do? Because we have to live up to whatever standard that he has set for us. We have to live according to the design that he has given us. And so therefore, if we all agree that God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, uh, Jesus Christ, his son, is the God that we follow, then we are more inclined or we have to decide that, that his words that have been written down are the words that we are going to live our life according to. That is our best measurement of what God is, who he, uh, God, what God is and what he expects from us and what he has designed us to be. And so when we look at scripture, I believe there are several things that we have to also agree on when it comes to scripture. Scripture, and it's this. There are three different things when we're studying Scripture that we must understand. The first one is there's a difference between the culture in Scripture and the God in Scripture, right? It's very easy to look at many things and go, well, that's the type of God it is, then I want nothing to do with Him, when the fact is maybe that is what God wants from us, or maybe we're just talking about what happened in the culture. For instance, um, it says, one of the scriptures, it says, spare the rod and spoil the child. That basically means you should beat your children, right, with a rod. Can I hear an amen for that? Or an ouch, at least. Can I hear an ouch? Right. So, so if you're for that, then you're like, I have no problem with Scripture. But if you're against that, then you have to decide, is that what God said? Or is that something that is from the culture of that time? Just this year in Scotland, they have now banned all type of striking upon children. You're no longer allowed to physically uh, strike the child whatsoever. Now, you're either for that or against. Some of you are like, oh, that's terrible. Others are maybe going, I, finally, we're not striking children. I'm not here to, to decide what you should think or what you shouldn't think. Well, my point is we're looking for God's inerrant word in the middle of errant culture, right? And the scripture shows the story of humankind, which is errant culture. That means it was full of sin. The second thing that we have to agree on is this, that this is a Middle Eastern text. Why is that so important? 
Because sometimes it's easy to look at the, the text that we're reading and we can decide we understand it when we actually don't understand it. We're looking at it through the lens of our Western mindset. And we can often look at scripture and think that this is the inerrant, inerrant word of God written by people that were just like us. No, they were written by people who are not really much like me. They're Middle Eastern people. And so it's easy to judge another culture based on how our culture looks at things. I was just on a bus last week when I was in London and, uh, and there was a bunch of Americans that were around me and I was sitting in front of this couple who were chatting away and, and the lady was saying to her friend, you know, I was in this restaurant the other day and it was just so terrible. Their, their service was just absolutely terrible. I can't believe it. And I was just thinking, I'm paying your tip and you're giving this bad service. And I wanted to turn around and say, but in Britain, we don't tip, right? She was looking through the lens of how we do things in America, not looking through the lens of how they do things in Britain. A tip is not going to motivate anyone in Britain because we don't do a tipping system, right? So if we look at other cultures through our own lens only, we're gonna have issues. This was written in Middle Eastern, uh, the Middle Eastern world. The third one is this. There are three types of law when we're reading scripture as well. And I realize I'm doing a lot of build up to what, before we get into slavery, but this is very important. The three different types of law. The first one was the moral law. What's the moral law? For example, the 10 commandments. You should not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not cheat. You shall not, you know, whatever it is. These are the 10 commandments and we actually hold to them still. Why? Because they're timeless. They're not tied to a generation. They're not tied to a time. They're not tied to a geography. They are timeless. It's the moral law. The second type of law that the scriptures usually describe is priestly law. Now, priestly law is for the priest. If you wanted to serve before God, then you had to follow a certain order of things where, for instance, you weren't allowed to cut the hair on the side of your head, right? Well, that's it. I've screwed that one up because look, I got no hair on the side of my head. Or, or they have another law, which is you're not allowed to have tattoos. All right, who, who amongst us are sinners and have tattoos on them right now? Huh? Oh, look at this, self-identifying sinners, right? So you're not gonna be a priest, right? Because it's priestly law. But the last law is what we call civic law. What's civic law? Civic law is the rules and regulations to determine how people should live with each other, how to interact with each other, like how to look after your animal. And oftentimes what people do is they'll look at scripture and they'll go, ah, you don't do this, so you can't be a follower of Christ. No, this was tied to the, to the Israelite nation. This was tied to the Jewish people. When Jesus came along, he brought a new covenant along and he helped us to start learning how to live in the kingdom of God. We are no longer tied to the civic law and we're no longer tied to the priestly law, but we're still tied to the moral law. Right? Why is this so important? Because when we're talking about slavery in the Old Testament, we have to see that it mostly falls under the category of civic law not moral law. So if we look at everything on, on, through the lens of moral law, we're gonna have problems with some of the things that we are about to read. So let's look at some scriptures this morning. I've got about four different major scriptures that I want to look at this morning uh, and little feeder scriptures as well. So here's the first one, Genesis chapter 15. Did God create slavery? Was he the one who came up with it? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, when he was having a conversation with Abraham, that was the man he was gonna make his covenant through and he was gonna bring about the nation of Israel, which Jesus would actually come from. It says this, then the Lord said to Abram, now for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. 
All right, the word slave is interesting because the word slave only happens in scripture twice. Every other time, even in this, in this, this spot right here, it's actually using the word server or worker. Okay, then why is it they actually translated it as slave or enslaved? It's simply because depending on the context of the word is put into, you can translate it as some level of enslavement. Does that, does that make sense? There are other words that are often used like bond servant or bond man, but these are not words that we use very often. So I want us to understand that most of the time when it's saying the word slave, it's actually saying worker or servant. So did God actually create slavery here? Was this him who decided to do it? Well, it all depends on whether you think that God was prescribing this or describing this. What's the difference? Well, prescribing is saying, I will make this happen. God is saying, I will make it happen that they will go into slavery. Wait a second, these people didn't even exist. And he's decided they're going into slavery. That's if you believe he is prescribing it. But if you believe he's just describing it, he's saying, I predict that this will happen because of the choices that will come about in their lives, right? So I'm not telling you which way you should look at this, but it will affect quite significantly how you understand everything that we're about to read. Either way, why would God let this happen? Why would he let people become enslaved? Well, I believe that there are three perspectives that you have to have on God's interaction with humanity. Not sorry, there's three perspectives you could have. There are three different ways that most people look at scripture. The first one is this, that God is outside of human choices. That God has made the heavens and the earth and he's put all, these, all this power into us. He's given us all this free will and we choose to do what we want and God doesn't really have that much power. He is not determining what, what everything that happens. Now, some of you might actually believe that. Or maybe some of you grew up, maybe uh, uh, where it says this, that God has predestined every choice. It's a very Baptist tradition. It's a very Calvinistic position where they believe that a God has predestined everything. Every choice, every decision has already been made and we're only living out the, the will of God. We can't understand his mind, but we are just living out what, what decisions he has made, whether we get it or whether we don't get it. We don't really have many, much power in this situation. Or maybe you can look at it in the third way. And the third way is that God uses human choices to fulfill his plan. So that means that whichever way that you live your life, if you mess up, you can often look at it and go, well, this is my own fault. God can't do anything about it because I've chosen that. Or maybe you're thinking God has decided that I was gonna mess up. Or maybe you're gonna look at it and say, God didn't decide I was gonna mess up, but he will use my mess up in order to fulfill his plan, right? That's what I actually lean to with this. Right? I'm not telling you that you have to follow or agree with what I'm saying, but I do believe that these are three different ways that people look at Scripture. Therefore, how you view God's position and this on this, it determines your interpretation of all the following passages we're about to have. You might have to accept that God is actually okay with slavery. Because if you believe that He has determined, predetermined every choice, then you have to be okay with the fact that God is okay with slavery. Or maybe you might have to accept that he has less power in our choices than what you thought if you believe the first one, right? So let's look at some of these difficult things. Did God, if God didn't necessarily create slavery, did he actually promote slavery? 
If it happened, was he okay about it? Did he just stand back and watch it happen? Well, let's read from Exodus chapter 21, two to four. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. Only the man shall go free. We're gonna skip over to uh, verse 20 to 21. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. Who's uncomfortable with this language today? I think probably most of us are not really comfortable with this because this seems like pretty bad stuff. Now, if you brought an atheist to me and he looked at this type of stuff, I can totally understand why he would go, see, God promotes slavery. If your God is really the God, then you have to agree that God promotes slavery. And this scripture seems to show that it actually does. And I totally get it that when we appeal to the fact that God is very black and white with when it comes to sin, it would seem that a true God would dictate a do not do clause, right? Do not do. When you look at the 10 commandments, he says, do not murder, do not steal, do not cheat, do not lie, do not covet. Why doesn't he say, do not do slavery? Why doesn't he do that? But this slavery text seems to be about regulation, not about elimination. That's problematic for the church because it seems like God has made room for some level of slavery. So therefore, is this hypocrisy? Is it hypocrisy that we're so against uh, um, um, abortions in the womb, but we're okay with having this scripture in our scriptures, in our Bibles? How is a person a property? How is it that true? Well, you see, when we look more into this and we stop looking from Western eyes, we can start seeing that there are different layers to this. The first one is this, that the word slave is better translated as a voluntary indentured service. How so? Because in those days, if you were poor and you had nothing, you had no land, you had no protector, you had nothing to look after you, you would have starved, your family would have starved. And so it was common in those days, even in the Roman Empire, that you could actually sell yourself to someone else in order to get that protection. I will sell myself, I will give myself completely to you, you will become my master as long as you feed me, you look after me, you protect me, you give me a covering over my head, you give me an education, you give me a job to do. These were rules that were to stop the abuse of slavery. This is why it talks so much about slavery in the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples of that. Here's an example of a regulation. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. So this tells us this couldn't have been like the chattel slavery of the transatlantic 400 years of slavery, right? So what the scriptures are talking about, it's saying, no, you can't kidnap someone. When, when, when Europeans went to Africa to, steal, to, to, to take slaves, they were stealing them. There wasn't a contract. It wasn't something where they were saying, would you like to come and work for me? They were stealing them. Well, scripture has an edict that says you can't cannot kidnap someone, and if you do, you're meant to die. Here's another regulation that's put in place. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. 
What does that mean that you couldn't have endless, endless life sentence of service to someone? There was a limitation, there was a term limit on how long you were actually allowed to work as a slave or an indentured service, indentured service to someone. Here's another one, Exodus 21, 26. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. <clears throat> so if there was any abuse upon a slave, then compensation had to come to them. Can I say this? I wonder how different our country would be if our government 200 years ago had kept to their promise to give 40 acres to every slave in America. I believe today we're still living with the tensions in our countries because that was a massive injustice. When we don't live up to God's way to compensate an injustice that is done to a person, we reap the price of that. Today we're living in an age where we're living with paying a price for things that our forefathers have done. I'm not here to criticize them or to pull them down because I have done things that my children will pay a price for myself. So I am not without guilt either. But the fact is, Scripture gives us regulation of how people should be treated. The idea of anyone being indentured, of indenturing anything or anyone seems horrible to us. It seems abhorrent. But again, we have to understand that we are reading a scripture from thousands of years ago that has the word of God in it amongst an errant people, a sinful people. It's a different culture. We are from the West and we are reading Eastern scripture. In fact, years ago, I was reading a book, I highly recommend it, and it's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. It's really fascinating. It's about these two missionaries that went off to the Middle East and they were serving there and they couldn't understand why they weren't able to reach people for Christ. And, and as I was reading it, I started to understand something a bit more. And it was that yeah, many of you know Pastor William and, and Pastor Hepsibah, the, the Indian pastors that we're really connected to. My father helped them to start a church way back in the day, about 30 years ago or so. And they've grown this church into 125 planted churches around India. And, and, and they call my father daddy and they call my, my mother mummy. And I'm like, this is kind of weird because they're not. They're my parents. They're your pastors. And and I really couldn't quite understand it. And then, and then years later, I, I discovered that they started naming their children after my father. And that's so my, you know, one of them's called Stuart and the other one's called Peter. And I'm like, this kind of weird. And I was kind of uncomfortable with it because it felt very colonialistic, right? And I was, had this little bit of a, a tension within myself until I read this book and it said, they talked about he was, he was uh, uh, working over in the Middle East and he had this young girl that came from the countryside and came to work in his household. And she, she, would, she would make the food and she would, would look after the house, etc., and she would live there. And as she lived there, she had met a young guy and she came to him and said, will you bless me to be able to be married, this young man? He goes, you don't need my blessing. You're free to do what you want. And she said, no, I'm under your covering. I have sold myself to you. And he's like, you haven't sold yourself to anybody. But in their language, that's how they understood it. Now, what happened is when she started having children, she started naming some of her children after his family. And he's like, this is getting weird. And I totally started to relate with that. And I realized that this was their culture of honor when they bring themselves under the covering of someone else. Listen, the Israelites have been enslaved for 400 years. Do you think they wanted to jump into slavery themselves? Do you think they really wanted to enslave people? Maybe you do believe that. But today I want to look at a few more passages that I believe are actually gonna be difficult. And here's the most difficult one. 
We're going to read from Leviticus chapter 25, 39 to 46, and it says this. If any of your fellow Israelites, fellow Israelites, get that stuck in your head. He's talking about the Jews. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Now this means that the rules changed amongst the civic laws. They were no longer allowed to just be slaves, indentured servants. They now had to be considered as hired workers. But then it goes on. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. But watch this. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country and they will become your property. Is anyone a little bit uncomfortable with this one? Why? Because it made a clear delineation between how they were to, to, to treat their fellow brothers, their fellow Jews, versus those that would actually come from other nations. Are there different rules for Jews versus others? The answer to this is yes, there was. Now it might seem fair. It might seem unfair to you, especially in our, in our American mindset. This seems super unfair. But the fact is we do this all the time. We prefer our family over everybody else. We even prefer our local countrymen than we do over other countries. You even heard the phrase America first. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, we tend to put people who are our kind closer to us and give them favor beyond anyone else. All right, but what about all these trigger words here? What about buying slaves and selling them and inheriting property? That seems problematic to us, right? So I'm just gonna end the sermon there and leave it with you. Well, the fact is context matters. Context matters because this text didn't supersede all the previous instructions that were already there. Remember, there are clear rules about regulation, about kidnapping. If you kidnap someone, you must die. We must assume that the foreigners sold themselves into this indentured service. It's easy to read this as you may take those people as slaves. And the fact is maybe it should be you should receive those people as slaves as they sell themselves to you. Yet they didn't, give, they didn't give that same rule to the Jews. They gave them a different preference. I totally get it. But now listen, the, one of the problems with words is that in a different context, it can mean something different. Today, we use the word buy, sell, trade all the time. We even talk about owning. How do we do that? Well, we do it with stocks and shares. Yes, Peter, but these are not people. But we also do it with sports. I will buy that player. I will trade that player. I will sell that player. This team owns that player. It all depends on how we're, the context that we're using these words because all of these words are transactional language words. In fact, we were bought by the blood of Christ. We were bought, who owned us? Sin owned us. We were sold to Christ. We were bought by Christ. 
So depending on how you use these words, you have to decide, are you gonna be triggered by these words or are you gonna take a step back and discover what context are they in? Verse 47 of this same chapter says this, that a foreigner could even own an Israelite. So this wasn't just a simple racism thing against other nations. Even Leviticus 19, a few chapters before, it says you're not allowed to mistreat foreigners. So we always have to take what we're reading in a much wider context in order to understand it. The point is context matters. Whenever I hear people taking scripture out of context, it now becomes a pretext. And a pretext is something that you make it you, what you want it to mean. You're in a pretext. But then how could we have this whole bequeathing thing, right? You can bequeath it to your, I think it's there. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and you can make them slaves for life. But you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. How can you bequeath them? It's easy to think that I have full control and I'm just gonna use these people whichever way I want. But in those days, remember, if someone was truly poor and had nothing, then they could have the permission to actually pass on in the family to make sure that they could maintain their covering, their protection, their goodness, their food, their education. They could literally decide to be committed to a family for the rest of their days. Now that's an interpretation that I'm putting into this. Here's the question I have. Is that what they really did? The answer is, I don't know. But I am not too scared to look at these types of scriptures because I think we need to be ready to tackle difficult things when it doesn't make sense to us, right? But I firmly believe at the end of the day, when I want to look at what is the truth, I want to see what Jesus says about things. Because Jesus is the only one who is both God and man and who has brought us the ability to live in the kingdom of God. We are not under the old law of the Old Testament. We are now under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. I'll tell you, to Jesus, this was a significant topic to him. See, to many of us, it's not that significant because none of us have been in slavery. None of us have really experienced what that's like. But for people who are in slavery, this is everything to them. And Jesus, after he was baptized and he went into the desert and he had, he had been tempted for 40 days and he had fasted for 40 days, the first thing that he did is he went back to his hometown, he went to the synagogue and he said, hey, can I preach something today? And they said, yeah, get on up. And here's what he preached that morning. And this is phenomenal. Jesus came along and he said, says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He was reading from Isaiah chapter 61. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was huge. Why? because no one had ever decided to stand up and say, we're done with all this slavery stuff. We're done with all this bondage stuff. Here's the problem with us in our West is that we read this as very spiritual. 
right? I will have good news to the poor spiritually. It'll proclaim freedom to the prisoners who are spiritual prisoners. Recovery of sight to the spiritually blind or set the spiritually oppressed free. But that's only because we've never experienced oppression like this before. We've never experienced slavery. But if you go into the Middle East around the world, you'll discover that there are 40 million slaves today, which is more than all the 400 years of slavery combined in transatlantic. You see, to them, this scripture means something different. And I understand that when we're looking at Old Testament stuff, it's difficult, it's tense. How do we interpret this? And we try to interpret it as much as possible. Maybe today we'll be able to walk away and go, oh, I'm so relieved that it didn't mean real chattel slavery. It just meant indentured slavery. I'm so relieved. I don't want you to go away today relieved. I want you to go away today of asking yourself, why am I not fulfilling what Christ has said? Because he started it. Jesus just started the freedom of those that are in slavery. He just started it, but it's not finished. If anything, it seems like it's gotten worse. And I believe he has given us the task of getting about the business of building the kingdom of God and bringing it here on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we support IGM. That's why we support international justice mission and as many of you that do it individually, that if you can't physically go and fight for the freedom of those that are in slavery or under or are absolutely oppressed, then at least you can give your money to go to the mission field and do it. I have a problem that we have so much opinion about what the, 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 the history of the slavery in America, but if you have so much opinion about that, but you do nothing about the slaves that exist today, that's a problem to me. Can I say it again? If you have such strong opinions about America's history of slavery, but you do nothing about slavery today, you're a hypocrite. You're a Christian hypocrite, which is worse. We have to do the work of Christ today. We have to be his hands, we have to be his feet, we have to be his mouth. Jesus said, I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. We get so consumed with our own bills, our own future, our own meaning, our own purpose, our own desires that we forget that God has already given us a job to do. And that job supersedes your vocation and your living, your business. It supersedes that. That doesn't mean you just stop making money. You have to support your family, but it supersedes everything that you think consumes your life. Father, today we want to ask for a humble heart. When we're reading scripture, we're looking at how you're working in a different time. And yet today, we're not very good at examining ourselves of how are you working in us and through us for your kingdom. And I pray today, Father, that you would give us a renewed passion and a tenacity for the gospel of Jesus Christ to see those that are in bondage freed in the name of Jesus because you have come to give us freedom and whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. Help us to be about the evangelistic power of Jesus Christ, to tell them about what he has done in our lives. Once again, we want to commit ourselves to your gospel. And we ask this in your precious son's name. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. I love you guys. I will see you next week.